Yo, 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 it's DGS on DHP coming back at you. And we are so happy to have Bobby Jameson of Capitol Hill Baptist Church, a Californian married to Kristen. They have four kids. He's an associate pastor at Capitol Hill Baptist Church, hopes to plant in North Carolina, Chapel Hill, to be more precise, very soon. So you can be praying for Bobby in that. Uh, Bobby and I have a conversation about the Lord's Supper today. And uh, where we try to land the conversation is how to prepare well, how to examine ourselves for that celebratory meal that we uh, we celebrate as a church. So we hope that you are encouraged and helped by this conversation. Please let us know if you have any feedback. Welcome to the Disciple Hinson podcast, Bobby Jameson. Thanks. Good to be with you. I can see you, but our listeners cannot see you. You're wearing a striped shirt. You're in your study at 525A Street Northeast, Washington, D.C., 20002. Exactly. And, uh, and your full name is Robert Bruce III. Robert Bruce Jameson III. Robert Bruce Jameson III. Um, and you, Lord willing, will be preaching in Henson's pulpit in March. Because, yeah, first Sunday of March. Looking forward to it. Because you're coming out also for the Northwest Nine Marks Northwest Conference on membership. Yes, looking forward to that too. Have you have you done a podcast over Zoom before? I have done many. Well, I think <laughs> this one's going to be special. This, the, I think, this is going to make the top ten of your ministry career. Um, we're going to talk about the Lord's Supper because you wrote a little book on the Lord's Supper. And, well, you've you've wrote multiple things, but the one I'm talking about is the, yes, the one we're both holding at the same time. It's like a mirror, except for you look much younger, don't have as much hair on your face, have more hair on your head. Uh, but on the head, look at all this, even after a haircut. Look just... at those locks. So jealous. Understanding the Lord's Supper. Uh, this is in the Church Church Basic series. Bobby, thank you for writing these. Um, even though they're small and they cost $7.99 MSRP, uh, we still use, we give these out like candy to our uh, church members, particularly the one on baptism, but this one as well as people are uh, thinking through these things. So this is how you define the Lord's Supper. Um, the Lord's Supper is a church's act of communing with Christ and each other, and of commemorating Christ's death by partaking of bread and wine, and a believer's act of receiving Christ's benefits and renewing his or her commitment to Christ and his people, thereby making the church one body and making it up, marking it off from the world. Um, so that's a mouthful. Yep. How would you su- how, how do you summarize how do you summarize that to uh, someone who just has a question in ordinary conversation? Uh, what is the Lord's Supper? Yeah, well, sure. It depends on kind of what explicit aspect they're asking about. But sure. it's a sign of the new covenant that mm-hmm. Jesus himself gave so that we would remember and be refreshed and renewed by celebrating his death together. So one way to say it is in the Lord's Supper, we celebrate the past and the future in the present all together. We look back to his death, we look forward to his return, and we experience fellowship with Christ and each other in the Lord's Supper. And I guess one important part of the Lord's Supper that I'd, I'd want to make sure is present in a definition, and that people might often maybe minimize or overlook, is that it is a family meal. It's meant to be celebrated by the whole church, and it actually gives shape and, and in a sense binds together the whole church as a body. So it's not like a private devotional act. It's not just something Christians do kind of individually, but it's actually a meal of the whole church family. That's great. And where are some scriptures that we could go to, to, uh, to get some of that data on the Lord's supper? Yeah. The, the main ones are Jesus's institution of 
in the Last Supper, when he institutes the Lord's Supper, so that'd be like Mark 14, Matthew 26, Luke 22, the parallel passages there. And then especially Paul's sustained discussion in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11. We often overlook 1 Corinthians 10, which discusses the Lord's Supper in contrast with meals in honor of idols. But uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 16, and 17 are really important. Paul says the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. You know, in some church traditions, the Lord's Supper is commonly referred to as communion. And the reason for that is that it's having communion with Christ and with each other. And that comes from what Paul's saying in, in verse 16 there. Fellowship or participation or communion, those are all ways of getting at the same Greek word koinonia. So 1 Corinthians 10, 16, 17 is really important. Then, of course, the long discussion in chapter 11. That's great. So you would, do you have any problem going to a church that calls the Lord's Supper communion? No, not at all. I mean, you could double-click on that and ask some questions about it, but no. Some, some churches call it communion. It's probably most common uh, to call it the Lord's Supper among evangelicals, but those so a lot of different phrases have a biblical basis. Could we call it Jesus Pizza? Pizza. Well, pizza might be slightly misleading. Uh, mm. It might, it might, in physical or carnal terms, be overpromising and uh, leave you dissatisfied with not getting your appetite satiated mm. by perhaps a little wafer. And Jesus Pizza also might be underpromising in spiritual terms. Like uh, it's not quite as transparent to Jesus' own instructions about doing this in remembrance of me. You know, the Lord's Supper. Well, that means the meal commanded by Jesus. Jesus Pizza sounds like you know, a new restaurant, just trying slightly too hard. I don't know. Maybe, maybe a misguided church outreach. I don't know. You youth group, small business project. Anyways, let's move on. Yeah, let's move on. There's a background to that, but uh, we won't get into that right now. It would not be of interest to most of our listeners, but a few of, of <laughs> very much interest. Um, what, it, so Jesus pizza is also probably not getting at the correct tone, uh, biblically of the Lord's supper. What should be the tone? Because, you know, here on the West coast, I mean, you're a West coast guy, you know, we're all about the tone. All about the aesthetic. All about, all about, all about the, the vibes. All about the feels. So all what? About the vibe. What? What should? Um, what should be the tone that we should be going for when we celebrate? I mean, does that that not kind of connotate some some tone right there? That verb. Yeah, yeah. I think um, it's a good question, and I think the Lord's Supper should have a kind of complex, rich tone. Like you might have a complex, rich flavor of a really nice food or beverage or something like that. You know, I'm drinking a coffee here that I got right before this meeting, and there's there's some darker overtones, some bright ones. It's a nice, it's a nice, you know, cup of coffee. And I think the Lord's Supper, we want to be careful not to reduce it to like only one aspect of tone. So there is a kind of solemnity there's a soberness and a weight. Um, Jesus was crucified for our sins. Uh, there should be a sense of repentance. There should be a sense of confession. There should be a sense of remembering the magnitude of his sacrifice. And there can be a, a sobriety, even a kind of... Um, recognizing the grief of what he endured. But then of course that can go too far. That could become like morbid. It could become too introspective. It could almost induce guilt. Oh, I'm so bad. Jesus had to do this. I sort of come out of the Lord's Supper feeling worse. 
Um, there should also be a sense of assurance, of confidence, of celebrating God's love, of recognizing the fullness of what Christ has done for us, celebrating that, receiving that. Uh, yeah, a sense of a sense of joy in the presence of God. You know, one of the biblical backgrounds for this meal is that uh, even in in sacrifices throughout the Old Covenant, the people who brought the sacrifice would actually eat from it. And, and there's a kind of celebration in a lot of the different sacrifices offered in the Old Covenant. That's part of, you know, this is the transformation of a Passover meal. It's a festival. It's a celebration. So I do think joy is appropriate. I think I'd probably want to say that integration of kind of soberness and joy, those would be two really important ingredients as well as hope looking forward. And I'd want to be careful that it didn't feel dour or like a funeral. I'd also want to be careful that it didn't feel sort of like cheap or, um, I don't know, like too casual. That's a little bit of a pitfall out on the West coast. If it's hey, like, Hey, oh, yeah, yeah, no easy. Hey, yeah. I'm as a Californian, <laughs> I have at least some West coast credibility left in me somewhere. Yeah. I think overly casual could be a temptation or a pitfall as that's helpful at one point you referred to this as a meal and the the joyful um celebration of it is is it really a meal or something to celebrate when the portions are so tiny (laughs) yeah um i do think the essence of the ordinance is you know jesus commands us to eat he commands us to drink there's two elements and so i do think that the essence of the ordinance uh, it does seem, in other words, we're not required to like make this a meal or make this uh, filling to satisfy our natural hunger or physical hunger. Um, it does seem like, especially in Corinth, where you have you know references to people eating before others, and uh, it does seem like it's a reference to a kind of full meal that the Lord's Supper was embedded in or was a part of, was celebrated together with. So I think it's I think it's permissible to do that. I think there may even be some benefits of doing that. I, I don't think that churches are required to do it though. But what I would say is it is it is still a meal in the sense that we're eating, we're drinking, we're doing it all together. And there's something deliberate, I think, that the Lord has given us in using those natural appetites. We take food in, we take drink in, we're nourished by it. There's a deep symbolism there about our our faith being nourished, us, us receiving Christ, you know, the act of partaking of the benefits of his sacrifice through this kind of physical act of, of declaring our faith in him. Uh, so I think describing it as a meal is helpful, even though, um, yeah, I think most people get it. it you know, you show up hungry. Uh, it only takes one time to figure out this isn't, you know, this isn't going to be enough for dinner. Yeah. Sometimes I just think of that scene from a Christmas Carol with tiny Tim's little meal there. Uh, not a lot to celebrate, but it's what it points to. Um, what about, uh, you, you already kind of inferred this in your definition, but what, what would you like to say about who the Lord's Supper is for? Who should take it? Yeah. I mean, one passage to go to directly on that is where Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven that whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Um, or verse 29, who anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. I think Paul's assuming that these are all believers partaking of the Lord's Supper. Uh, he's addressing a church. He's addressing a group of Christians. He's talking about what they do when they come together as a church. Um, so there's a clear distinction between belonging to the church and not belonging to the church. Um, he even he even holds them accountable for how they relate to one another. So I think Paul's assuming they're all believers. I think he's assuming that being a believer is a necessary prerequisite to partaking of the Lord's Supper. There's no way that an unbeliever could partake without eating or drinking judgment on themselves. 
Uh, that person's not in Christ. They're, they're not in the fundamental union with Christ that makes communion with impossible. So being a believer, but also the way Paul holds them accountable, like in verse, um, you know, verse 20, uh, like verse 20, verse 20 in chapter 11, when you come together, it is not the Lord's supper that you eat. He's criticizing them for their behavior and the way they're relating to each other. People with more are going ahead and eating and getting drunk. People with less are going without. So in other words, Paul is assuming they have a responsibility for and accountability to each other, which I think to put that in everyday language means he's assuming these are members of the church, people who belong to the church, people who belong to each other. And that that actually partaking of the Lord's Supper together is an expression of their care for each other and their responsibility for each other. So I think normally, you know, like if if you are uh, in regular fellowship with the church, you should be partaking of the Lord's Supper um, and you shouldn't be in a kind of state where it's like, well, I go to this church, but I'm not really part of it. There's something to be kind of regularized and ironed out there. The Lord's Supper should be a family meal. That that belonging should be thicker and more committed than just like opting in and opting out whenever you want. So, so to summarize all that, I'd say it should be believers in the Lord Jesus Christ who've been baptized, which is part of the part of the ordained entryway into the, the fellowship of the church, uh, and who are believers in the Lord Jesus who've been baptized and who belong to each other in church membership. Okay. And is that how uh, the the term fencing the, the Lord's Supper, is that kind of how, like at your church at Capitol Hill Baptist, how you guys would fence uh, the meal? And in other words, give instructions on who this meal is for? You would kind yeah, of lay would... out those provisions? Yeah, that term could sound a little bit... Um offensive, <laughs> but fencing the table, it would just refer to the, the church's kind of public declaration of who we understand this meal is for, who we understand is permitted to come. And so, yeah, at CHBC, we publicly articulate that if anyone's a member of the church and good standing, they're welcome and encouraged to partake. And if anyone's a member of another church where the same gospel is preached, so they're a believer, they've been baptized, and they're a member of another gospel preaching church, they're also welcome to partake with us. We'd understand if they meet those same basic qualifications and they belong to the church where they are, they're welcome to join with us. We'll kind of announce that at the beginning of the service and typically at the very beginning of our celebration of the supper. And just because people may be particularly out here in Oregon have struggled with um, the requirement that you must be a part of another church or be baptized in order to take the Lord's Supper, what would be the scriptures that you would go to uh, to support that you, I mean, you spoke about 1 Corinthians 11 earlier, but just to underline this. Yeah, on each of those points, well, to take baptism first, I think we have a kind of pattern established for this in Acts chapter 2, at the end of Pentecost, where Peter's preaching, and we, we read in Acts 2.41, so those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So if you receive the word, you're baptized. That's how you publicly declare your allegiance to Jesus and your commitment to his people. And then in the very next verses, we get this snapshot of the church's corporate life together, teaching, praying, having fellowship meals together, meeting in each other's homes, gathering all together. And it probably refers to the Lord's Supper when it says breaking of bread in verse 42. I do think that's a reference to the Lord's Supper. So we get this pattern of receiving the word, being baptized, then taking the Lord's Supper. The kind of initial commitment of saying, I'm on team Jesus, precedes then all the other activities that belonging to Jesus and his people entail. So I would say baptism is the entrance into the households of the, in terms of the public committed corporate people of Christ. Baptism is the entrance into, that, into the household. The Lord's Supper is the family meal. And for anybody who's maybe 
hesitant or, or not persuaded about a kind of formal belonging um, being necessary for that. Yeah, I would say, you know, in, in 1 Corinthians 10, 16, Paul talks about participation or fellowship or communion. He implies that's with each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, in other words, it's sharing in Christ with each other altogether. Or again, in, in verse 11, where, um, you know, uh, sorry, chapter 11, when Paul is exhorting them and critiquing them for their lack of love, uh, he's assuming that they know who they're responsible for. They know who they should be looking out for in love. Uh, there's a kind of definite shape to that corporate commitment. And of course, this is right before Paul's teaching on the body of Christ as a metaphor for how we all belong to each other and need each other. So I think, um, yeah, the, the Christian life involves being accountable to Jesus and to his people. Even the way we speak about church discipline is being excommunication. Uh, it's being removed from uh, permission to participate in the Lord's Supper. That that's where your belonging in the church shows up. Bobby, this is so helpful, and you've you've written at length on this and you, this little understanding the Lord's Supper. But you've also written in other places about the ordinances. Um, what what are those resources again? Remind us. Yeah, so I've got a, another short little book called Understanding Baptism, mm-hmm. and these two are kind of a pair. They go together. Mm-hmm. And a longer book called Going Public, which is particularly an argument for requiring baptism for church membership. But what that book also does is, is it kind of shows how the um, ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper actually bind people together into a local church. So the ordinances are what kind of stick us to each other. They're what identify us visibly and publicly as belonging to Jesus. And so for someone who might uh, be looking for a proof text for membership, I understand. I appreciate that instinct. Uh, I would say, actually, the ordinances themselves bind us to each other. It's not like there's something else or something extra. They create a unified, publicly committed company of Christ followers. It's actually the ordinances themselves that are doing that. So I'd say membership is part of the meaning of the ordinances. That's kind of the argument I make in going public. That's great. Okay, we're going to go to a lightning round and then slow down to have a little bit longer discussion on how to prepare uh, for the Lord's Supper. This this was one of our church faithful church member Trevor Gilbert's ideas is a podcast on how to prepare. But I thought it'd be helpful to hear, you know, a little bit what is the Lord's Supper and uh, some of the, more of the theological grounding for it. Just a, a couple other practical questions. Who should administer the Lord's Supper? Yeah, I don't think scripture gives us an absolute rule here. I don't think it gives us a strict instruction. I think it's prudent because it is the um, kind of representing the whole church's fellowship, that there's a recognized leader of the church, uh, which would normally be an elder, kind of presiding over it. I think that's prudent, but I don't think that's an absolute requirement. So for instance, if you're in a, a kind of missionary context or a brand new church plant, maybe there isn't a pastor. Uh, I think a, a, a committed group of Christians who meet together for worship can celebrate the Lord's Supper. I don't think they need a pastor to lead them in. And I think they have the authority to do that, but I think it's typically prudent for a pastor to lead. And uh, what what about the frequency? When should we celebrate the Lord's Supper? Uh, can we do it yeah. in small Wednesday night small groups, church retreats? What do you think? Yeah, so I think um, Paul five different times in First Corinthians eleven refers to coming together as a church. Verse seventeen, when you come together. Verse eighteen, when you come together. Verse twenty, when you come together. And who he's talking to is the whole church in Corinth. So he's speaking to them about a whole church meaning, uh, meeting. And I think that a whole church meeting is part of the meaning of the ordinance. 
Meaning, uh, I, I appreciate, I understand the good intentions of anybody celebrating it at a wedding or a youth retreat or all that kind of thing. But I think we simply don't have authority to do that. That's that's making the Lord's Supper into something that it's not. I think we should only celebrate it in a meeting of the whole church. And then I do think it's a matter of prudence, whether that's weekly or monthly. Um, I think scripture doesn't, I, you know, I'm sympathetic with, and I respect people who, who actually think weekly is required. I'm not convinced of that position. Um, I think it's, I don't think there's any, you know, strong reason not to do it weekly. Uh, but yeah, I think it's a matter of prudence. And what about passing the plate versus going forward? Yeah. Again, I don't think there's an absolute scriptural rule here. I think that, um, one, uh, I think there can be some helpful symbolism of passing the plate where it's like a meal that's being distributed to you as a church, a sign of God's grace coming to you. Uh, there could be some like priestly associations of like you going up to receive this from someone uh, with the kind of going forward approach. I don't think those are absolutes, though. I think churches have, have freedom there. Okay, and now let's talk about preparation, because in 1 Corinthians 11, 27 and 28, it says, So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself in this way. Let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. Um, so, And then he goes on. But what about what would it mean to eat of the bread and drink of the cup? of the Lord in an unworthy manner. What, what would be an example of that? Yeah. So I do think that, um, in this case, the specific sin that prompts Paul to write this is a kind of um, blatant disregard for other members of the body, actually celebrating the Lord's Supper in a way that's excluding people and harming them. So it's a kind of very concrete lack of love that's dividing the body. So I think Paul's pointing to a sin. It even kind of seems to be a sin they're not really repenting of. And so... I think one way Christians with sensitive consciences can be tempted to interpret this is like, oh man, if I if I have any little spot or stain on my record, I better not participate in the Lord's Supper. Like, oh, I got to sit this one out. I appreciate the sincerity and the humility of believers who are, who are kind of tempted in that direction, but I do think it's a temptation. I don't think Paul's referring to any sin you're aware of. Uh, I think it's appropriate to have a time of confession of sin at the Lord's Supper, but I think what Paul effectively means by eating in an unworthy manner is eating while sinning unrepentantly. Uh, I think the basic criterion for coming to the Lord's Supper is repentance. So I don't think being aware of any sin in your life is disqualifying. Uh, we all remain sinners as Christians. And the Lord's Supper, part of the glory of it, part of the grace of it, is that it's a reminder of God's grace that's greater than our sin. It's a reminder of the continual forgiveness we all need as Christians. So I think eating in an unworthy manner is effectively about unrepentance. And I think um, sometimes Christians, there are certainly Christians who, uh, you know, professing believers who are sinning unrepentantly and need a wake-up call. But there are also Christians who I think are tempted to kind of abstain at the slightest little infraction. It's like, well, no, we all commit those sins. That's why we need this grace that the Lord's Supper embodies in the first place. So as far as preparation goes, I think, um, yeah, some time of private prayer and reflection is helpful uh, before coming to church. I think it's helpful if churches can provide for that, even a, like a brief time of private reflection and confession, maybe in addition to a kind of public prayer of confession or unified prayer of confession. Um, so, yeah, I think I think uh, just a kind of prayerful 
Prayerful self-examination is appropriate and helpful, but I'd want to be careful that I don't make it like an absolute rule of if you haven't set aside a quiet time exclusively devoted to confessing your sins and examining your sins, you're not qualified, that it's a kind of prerequisite. So I think, yeah, it's helpful to, to, to pray beforehand, to examine the scriptures, maybe to read a passage of scripture that'll help make your own sin kind of plain to you and, and confess your sins to the Lord. I suppose another element of this too is is there any measure of uh, interpersonal preparation? I think, you know, again, there's a balance to be struck here. I do think that if you are, um, if you are the cause of some type of division or conflict and you are aware of your role, it is highly advisable and prudent. And I could even shade over toward pretty much necessary, depending on the circumstances for you to go do what you can to reconcile and make it right before partaking of the Lord's supper. At the same time, I want to recognize the kind of realism that the Apostle Paul brings to situations like that, where he says in Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. That uh, it doesn't mean like if I said a harsh word toward my wife, well, now she's like with our kid out in the hall or serving in childcare or something, and oh, my conscience is kind of pinging me. Does it mean I can't partake of the Lord's Supper if I'm aware that I kind of need to apologize to my wife for something I said earlier today? Well, no, I, I think, again, I think I think there's a way we can have an overly sensitive conscience. Um yeah, as if we somehow have to come with a perfect record to the supper. So I, I do think there could be an element of rectifying conflict or harm you've caused in the body, but that's not a kind of absolute rule or demand for perfection. That's really helpful. And that uh, already addressed some of my follow-up questions. And by the way, did you hear that magical sound when you were talking about repentance? I wasn't, no. oh, oh, maybe, maybe just our listeners will hear sound? that. Um, well, I was leaning my Bible against it. Is, you hear that? Okay, maybe just our listeners. I'll I'll play that for you later, Bobby, just for your own pleasure. Okay. Um, but uh, okay, so what would be some examples then of maybe even from your own life and ministry where you have advised or the elders of your church have advised someone not to uh, take the Lord's Supper? Yeah, that's a very good question. I don't think I personally have ever... Well, okay. I mean, here, I suppose, um, I guess the only time I've done that is just to try to be clear with a new believer or someone who's kind of in the process of coming to membership and hasn't yet been baptized. Maybe it's going to be next week. Maybe it's going to be in two months. I've just tried to be clear with them. Hey, just so you understand, you know, you shouldn't be partaking of the Lord's Supper until you're baptized. I suppose I've, I've made that clear to people kind of on their way into the church. It's a little bit different circumstance. I have never personally advised someone to abstain because of a sin they're aware of or I'm aware of. Um, I think we want to be careful. It's, it's the church as a whole who acts to discipline. And so if there's unrepentant sin in someone's life, ultimately that should come to the whole congregation to then say to the person, hey, we're, we all together are removing you as an act of discipline. And that person should respect the church's act. They should uh, not be partaking of the Lord's Supper if they've been removed as an act of discipline. You know, uh, friends of mine who I've pastored with, they've, they've talked about circumstances where it might be the case that you know a person's sin, they know their sin, 
Uh, they're aware of it. They don't deny it. It's not clear they're repenting. The church hasn't kind of fully formally acted yet. But you might say, yeah, I didn't, I would encourage you not binding your conscience as like an authoritative declaration, but I would encourage you just for the sake of your soul. While this sin is in your life, and I'm not sure you're really dealing with it, I would just encourage you not to be partaking of the Lord's Supper. Kind of like it really looks like you're on your way to church discipline here. And I just encourage you to use this as a time for, for reflection, meditation, confession. I suppose I have a category for that. I've never used that category, not yet at least. And you want to be careful that an individual is not sort of speaking for the church or getting in the way of the church. I think you're either a member in good standing or you're not. And that's the church's business to sort out. Mm, that's a good word. We have decided at Henson at least one time that I can remember with someone kind of on the way to church discipline and the Lord's Supper yep. was coming up and it hadn't yet come to the whole church, um, but advised that this person not not participate. Yeah. So, so that's negatively. Are there any practices that you have heard throughout church history uh, in your own church family or even in your own life of positively a good posture, a good way to pr- kind of of uh, plow up your heart and prepare for this this wonderful gift that the Lord has given us to to remember his death for us in the Lord's Supper. Just anything that comes to mind? Any practices or just, is there anything different for you when you're coming on a Sunday? Because at, at uh, Capitol Hill Baptist, you guys do it uh, once a month like we do here at Henson. Yep. So what? anything that would be different about that that week prior, that Saturday night, that Sunday morning prior to the celebration. Man, I feel like I feel like a lame pastor right now because I wish I had a good and I wish I had an answer off the top of my head. There may be some great ideas and stuff our members do that I'm not aware of or not thinking of. Honestly, for me personally, maybe my lame answer will be an encouragement to your members. I find that even as a pastor, uh Sometimes the Lord's Supper, we we do have a time of private confession early on. And I often feel like maybe I haven't even really reflected and prepared my own soul as I would like to. Um, and that time of private confession really helps me kind of take inventory of my soul, mm-hmm. confess some sins that kind of come to the forefront of my mind uh, that maybe I haven't been living as spiritually a self-examined life even that day as I would really like to. And that it, it kind of it kind of is a helpful stall, you know, pulling off to the side of the road. Mm-hmm. And, um, and even helping me do some kind of spiritual makeup work. So I could think, I could think in theory about all kinds of helpful things. Um, I, I personally, it's, it's more just kind of a certain, um, awareness or yeah, I don't, I don't have a real concrete, great answer there. I'm often helped (laughs) by that corporate time Mm, to take mm -hmm. stock of my own soul. No, I I, I don't know. What about you, Dan? Do you have anything in mind? Uh, Give a better answer than my uh, answer. Well, I, I resonate with what I think I, what you're saying. I, I agree. And I've, um, I'm often in that situation. I think, you know, the, the Lord's supper is a way to remember and celebrate the gospel. And when we confess our sins privately, and we usually one of our, el- well, always our, one of our elders will lead us in a prayer of confession and thanks. I'm, I'm almost always helped by those prayers. Um, but I, I, as I, as I even prepare to like to eat the bread and drink the cup, I'm just, 
I'm reminded that I do not deserve to be at this table after we've just confessed the sin, that it's only because of the blood of Christ and his body broken for me. He was broken so that I could be at this table and that I do, you know, I, I shouldn't be here, but, uh, Christ was so gracious to me. So it's, you know, I think it's a little vague, but, uh, rejoicing in in Christ um, being thankful for the gospel it's another it's another and a very unique and special opportunity to do that both individually but also corporately as I'm looking around with uh, these people that Lord willing we will be celebrating you know eating of uh, the feast of the lamb in in uh, the new heavens and the new earth together so as, as you spoke to and even your definition it's just a, a time to reflect on that as you look back on Christ's sacrifice and then look forward to the consummation of of uh, of all things um, amen uh, Amen to all that. Now, uh, the only other question um, that I would have is, what about room for healthy disagreement? Maybe someone listening to this podcast doesn't agree with all of <laughs> what we have discussed. Um, are there instances when you would like maybe be visiting a church, say on vacation or something like that, and they're celebrating the Lord's Supper, and you're like, yeah, I'm not going to celebrate the Lord's Supper, or like, where is there room for healthy disagreement on this issue? Yeah, that's a good question. I think um, I think in terms of whether to partake or not, uh, two questions: Do I do am I qualified as this church understands it? I think is an important one. Mm-hmm. And do I understand this church to be a gospel preaching church? Mm-hmm. Um, if both those things are true, I will partake because I think there's also a danger of not. I think you want to not be overly divisive. Mm-hmm. Oh well, I disagree with this church about this, that, and the other thing. Well, if they're a gospel preaching church, I want to embody my unity with them, even if I'm just visiting with them. So I do think that there is a kind of sad irony in that oftentimes that there are certain disagreements between Christians that that separate us from each other in terms of Lord's table fellowship. And I think some of that is just the downstream consequences of error that we can't, we can't sort of just get a technical or engineering solution around to kind of like, oh, well, here's how we can just all be together. Um, at the same time, I think we want to have a charitable attitude. Uh, and yeah, if they would understand I'm welcome and I think they're a gospel preaching church, I would intend to participate. That also means that if I'm visiting some kind of church service where I'm just not sure if they teach and preach that Jesus bore our sins and got up from the grave and you got to believe in him to be saved, I will abstain. You know, that would go for like any kind of liberal Protestant service I may happen to be at, a Roman Catholic mass. I mean, there's lots of circumstances where I would not. That's really helpful. Hey, Bobby, we're out of time. Thank you so much for taking some time in a busy day to have this discussion. I, I trust it'll be useful. Um, and we so look forward to having you and Kristen out here uh, in March. It's going to be fun. All true. Looking forward to it. All right. Thanks again, Bobby. Talk to you later. Thanks, brother.